Our passage this morning is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. I'd like to invite you to read along with me as I read. Um, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 964. And if you're using your own Bible, you're going to have to find it yourself. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Our God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will hold us fast. Giving honor to God, the Father, Son, our Savior, and Lord, the Holy Spirit on this Trinity Sunday. And with great thanksgiving to Pastor Gerald and the elders again for this opportunity. Good morning. So good to be among you all to bring the word of God once again and have fellowship with all of you, the saints of God. Thank you, worship team and tech team, for providing a means for us to sing to God's great glory and recite the deep truths that we have held dear since the beginning of the church. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. And then let us go back to our text in 2 Corinthians 1 together. Father, now we turn our hearts and minds, our souls to you. Hear you speak to us from heaven. Have the Holy Spirit impress your will upon us. For you to make us holy, to fill us with your goodness and your joy. Would you bless our students as they go on the missions trip, transform them to be more like your son. Show them the importance of the proclamation of the gospel around the world. Bring them back to us safely, full of more love for you and love for one another. Now, God, may you be glorified in Oak Park, all around Chicago land, yea, all over the world as the gospel is preached, and be with our partners today. Speak to us now, draw to Christ whom you will, and we give you thanks for what you're about to do. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for our salvation. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. It only takes one bad experience 
We're sharing openly about our struggles, our pains, our fears, and our failures for us to learn the dangers of being vulnerable. It takes speaking in front of a lower grade class only to have your classmates laugh at your summer experience. You enjoyed your summer immensely, but in their jealousy, your classmates decided to make fun of what you thought was normal for everyone. It only takes that ridicule to determine that if you ever have to do public speaking again, it will not be about anything personal. It only took one friend to let out a secret about someone you liked or were dating for you to make sure that going forward, you kept all your feelings about others bottled up away from so-called friends. You had no plans to kiss and tell. How dare someone else do it for you and embarrass you in front of others? Just one time it got back to you that the neighbors or co-workers knew about the fighting or infidelity in your home. That would be enough for you to grow up to tell your own children never to talk to anyone outside of the home about anything that takes place inside of the home. Or you still remember when you made a mistake on your team or at the office and it zipped through text and emails before you could process a way to correct your mistake. That's all it took for you to determine any hint of your potential for failure would never be known by the public. Once we determine that it is not necessary, prudent, or safe to tell others the depth of our pains or of our real lives that are out of the public's eye, it becomes very difficult, if not nearly impossible, for some to convince themselves that church and the people of the church are sanctuaries of harmlessness places where you can bring real pains and no one will use them to harm you any further. No, we can't trust those rumor mills because we all have experienced gossip passed along in the form of prayer requests for others. However, far from holding his most sensitive thoughts, emotions, and experiences close to his chest, sealed away behind a protective door like a watertight bulkhead on a carrier or a submarine, the Apostle Paul brought his deepest anguish to the congregation at Corinth. He did this in the face of people questioning his credentials, calling him weak, and pulling some away from following his preaching of the gospel. That is, when Paul was being most vilified, most slandered, and most ridiculed for his choices in following Christ, it was then that Paul made his greatest despair known to others. Paul did it 
so that they and we would learn to trust the power of God in despair. And so that together with Paul, they and we would be able to glorify God for his goodness toward those who are experiencing despair. Paul's words today are going to stretch the worldview of some of us and totally undo the worldview of others. The worldview that does not trust, that is skeptical, that loves conspiracy theories, and that always must be in the advantageous position toward others in order to give us another way of viewing paths to success, blessing, security, and wholeness in this life, Paul offers this. First, by making our despairs known, people feel the weights of our pains. When Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, he is using first century wording that indicates that his audience has some general awareness of what is happening, but they lack details. The Corinthians had heard that between that last letter and Paul's last visit, something had happened to Paul and Timothy in the Roman province of Asia near Ephesus, but exactly what they did not know. So Paul tells them that he and Timothy had experienced affliction or distress. He speaks of his trouble in two ways. He strings together a series of words that we translate as utterly burdened beyond our strength in the English Standard Version and as crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure in the New Living Translation. The sense we get from these translations is that Paul and Timothy faced something that took them to the limit of their wits, of their emotions, of their ability just to make it. And they are revealing this to the full congregation at Corinth. They tell the Corinthians that they despaired of their very lives. That is, Corinthians, things were so bad. When we woke up in the morning, we were not sure if we were going to make it to the end of the day. And when we lay down at night, the things we faced were so bad that we were not sure if we were going to make it through the night until the morning. Then Paul tells them that within themselves, both he and Timothy had the sentence of death. We translate the phrase as we felt the sentence of death in order to capture the idea behind in ourselves that is in the original. But Paul and Timothy, both of them, inside of themselves, had the sense that an official decree of death had been cast upon them. That of these travails, God was saying to them that it is determined that here you will die. Can you imagine that whatever they were facing, 
It was so painful, so scary, that all they could feel is that death was imminent. Moreover, can you think of the risk that they are taking in saying this to people who already are being swayed against them? They already think Paul is nothing in comparison to the so-called super apostles. Why is Paul handing them fodder to add to their portrayal of him being weak? Paul wants the Corinthians to feel the weight of what he was feeling. That for the sake of the gospel and their sakes, he had experienced deep despair and had thought that the end of his life was upon him. Who knows how long he suffered like this? But he tells them what he and Timothy felt so that the Corinthians could enter their despair. As said from this pulpit many times, vulnerability is a problem because, one, we have been hurt by being vulnerable. Two, we have been taught not to let people have anything over us. Three, putting on the happy face is the evangelical way. That is, how are you doing? I'm blessed. Me too. Praise the Lord. Really? All the time, every time we see you? And fourth, we cannot be or even appear to be weak, and we think that if you have to talk to someone else, it means that you are weak because you couldn't deal with your problem or resolve it on your own. Truthfully, the weakness is in deceiving yourself into thinking you solved your problem on your own when actually all you did was stuff it down in yourself until someone ticks you off enough for you to explode that problem all over them. It is a lie that your knowledge or your manhood or your womanhood is challenged by talking to others about your pains. No one is challenging your core identity any more than someone is challenging your manhood when you get your ABS brakes looked at by someone at a service shop. No one is challenging your womanhood any more than when you get exfoliate performed at a day spa. All you are doing is going to a professional. Manhood and womanhood are not on the table. Only armchairism is on the table. Is armchairism even a word? Well, it's a word now. Armchairism is the only thing that is on the table. We tell ourselves, surface hurts are okay to chair, but real pain and real-time pain is off limits. We do not see the benefit of telling others we only think they will have something to hang over our heads. Even in saying this, you who have convinced yourself your whole lives never to let people know of any of your pains, this, to say that vulnerability is modeled by Paul and is beneficial to the body of Christ means nothing to you. Yet, 
I don't see Paul in these verses saying to Timothy, Tim, don't tell them we thought we were going to die or they will never let us live it down. Instead, you see Paul telling his and Timothy's business of his and Timothy's feelings of despair. And I don't even know if he asked Timothy for permission to do this. He says, we do not want you to be unaware of the affliction we experience. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. Paul wants Corinth to feel what he was feeling. Second, by making our despairs known, others are invited to review our hope with us. Down in verse 9, you read, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. In sharing his raw emotions with the congregation, Paul finds God-related reasons for the despair they experienced. God will be exalted in Paul's sharing of his despair. Had he not told the depths of his troubles openly, what he says about God here might ring hollow. But instead of ringing hollow, God is magnified as human ability is minimized. On this, multiple commentaries that I referenced had the same quote by John Calvin on these verses. It's always good to quote John Calvin. In which Calvin said these words, quote, There are, accordingly, two things to be observed here. In the first place, that the fleshly confidence with which we are puffed up is so obstinate that it cannot be overthrown in any other way than by our falling into utter despair. For as the flesh is proud, it does not willingly give way and never ceases to be insolent until it has been constrained." nor are we brought to true submission until we have been brought down by the mighty hand of God. Secondly, it is to be observed that the saints themselves have some remains of this disease adhering to them and that for this reason they are often reduced to an extremity that stripped of all self-confidence they may learn humility. Nay more, that this malady is so deeply rooted in the minds of men that even the most advanced are not thoroughly purged from it until God sets death before their eyes. Calvin finishes by saying, And hence we may infer how displeasing to God confidence in ourselves must be when for the purpose of correcting it, it is necessary that we should be condemned to death. Calvin says that our confidence in our ability to work out everything on our own power is so entrenched and rebellious within that God must give us the divine smackdown to crush pride and to bring us into conformity to him. 
He also says that even the most mature of believers cannot be cured of confidence in our own abilities to resolve all or conquer all until we think we are staring death in the face and realize that this is the one hurdle we cannot jump over on our own. God will cast the sentence of death before our eyes to bring us to that point. Late New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce paraphrased these clauses as, and this was ordered in the providence of God so that we should abandon all trust in ourselves and place our trust solely in God who alone can raise the dead. Our hope not that we will never suffer, or that if we do face suffering, that we will have enough resources within ourselves to overcome every challenge, threat, and obstacle. Our gospel is not a gospel of self-reliance. The gospel of our hope is the good news of God-reliance, that we are trusting the Lord to do everything on his own to rescue us. This means we must accept that God is working to keep us from relying on ourselves. This itself is an amazing thing for the Lord to breathe out through the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians for us. God permitted by decree that Paul and Timothy would not get out of this affliction in Asia until they felt within themselves that they were going to die and had concluded within themselves that God had determined that the point of despairing of life was the time of their actual deaths. God did this to them to force every microscopic speck of their beings to rely on God completely and alone in all things and to have hope in nothing else but God. Now, I can still think of three reasons why someone might find it yet difficult to rely on God as the only plan rather than the backup plan once our efforts fail. A first reason it is difficult to rely on God alone is that we do not like waiting. We don't like sitting in our discomfort. Discomfort seems to be against everything we believe about the will of God in Christ to bless us. But that is not Paul and Timothy's Christianity. The great thing about God our Father is that when we come to him, even though we don't know the when or the what or the how he will do, we do know that both when he seems not to be acting and when he actually performs the deliverance, he is always doing good toward us. A second reason we find it difficult to rely on God fully when we are being crushed, threatened, or overwhelmed is that we want to control the outcomes and make things go our way rather than the Lord's chosen way. We want to tell the Lord the best way to handle things when we can only see 
the issues that are within our purview. The Lord knows the best way to handle things because he sees the past, the present, and the future. And he sees not only us, but also thousands of other people who will be affected by how he acts in our dilemmas as people enter into our pain and as they watch our testimony of deliverance. So we're going to have to steer away from manipulation attempts, such as gathering people to our side or point of view, making another phone call in order to make sure people have heard our concerns and or understand the seriousness of the situation, or giving the cold shoulder or shunning people or threatening to withhold our blessings, or giving our best sob story of what will happen if people do not act on our behalf right now with tears that would make every crocodile jealous. When Paul was near to death, do you think he was praying, Lord, please take us to the point of despairing of life so that when the Corinthians are being challenged by your super apostles, or by the super apostles, excuse me, we will be able to tell them to stop following the false apostles, even at the risk of their own lives? Do you think that he was saying in prayer, Lord, may you work this out in a way that will bring us to the edge of death, so that when I later write in this book about momentary and light afflictions and later write about what happens when this earthly tent is destroyed, I will have full credibility with the Corinthians? No. More than likely, Paul and Timothy were praying for full deliverance. But the Lord had determined, not yet. There's a church that needs to serve poor believers in Macedonia. To encourage them to give sacrificially, Paul will need to argue that I can provide for every need. When he tells them to sacrifice their money because I supply seed to the sower, they will hear him because I supplied him life when he was on the edge of death. No, Paul, I will not deliver you yet. Sit in being at the point of death because I am doing more in my decree of absolute good than you can ever imagine in this present life. A third reason that relying on God alone is difficult is that sometimes we do not know when we are depending on ourselves. Sometimes we are crying out to the Lord while not realizing we are holding on to the last little bits of our own life vest. I know for me, there have been times when I thought that I was depending on God fully, and he will later show me, nope, you're depending upon your own knowledge. You're depending upon your friendliness. You're depending upon your likability to everyone. You're depending upon your credibility or the visibility of your diligence, or you are depending on your ability to fly under the haters' radar. Let me take those things away from you, Eric, so you can really trust me. I often get to speak with disappointed recent college graduates and disheartened young marrieds 
Recently, one asked me if someone could have a midlife crisis in their 20s. I replied, yes. Because at any point in life, we can be disillusioned by not seeing our dreams and expectations being actualized. It is then that we become tempted to leave a marriage, buy a new boat or sports car, etc., in order to fight against the feelings of being a failure. I told the student, promise me that you will not do anything like that. Instead of such wrong-headed responses, we each need to think of any and all good that has come from the last affliction, such as growth, movement from a bad situation we couldn't see, a needed dose of humility, the ability to learn how to praise while beholding our pain, gaining of new friends and new community, being forced to see something undesirable within, learning that Jesus is a rock and a fortress, a shield and a strong tower, a fence and a healer and a door opener and a good shepherd down in Death Valley. Examine how the Lord has used our deepest stomach knotting pains to bond us to people with whom we otherwise never would have bonded. How he's used it to make us a resource to some or to be able to tell others the resources we use. To learn that we are not as faithful or kind or meek or as gracious as we thought we were. Or to learn that we have not overcome the bitterness or anger that we thought we had overcome. The squeezing of the vice grips on us makes those stubborn remnants of sin or weaknesses spill out of us. But look at what we have become and what we are becoming. God is molding us into a people who will let him be Savior and Lord in all things. We are becoming a people who will not and cannot rely on ourselves, but must rely on God alone. Cannot tell you of all the hope granted to you by me and others who stand at this pulpit week after week sharing our own various crushing experiences or share it in another medium. Just think of the fruit we are gaining every week because Pastor Gerald told us over a year ago that on day one of his sabbatical, he experienced a panic attack that he didn't see coming and couldn't understand why it was upon him. He was brought to a place in which he can no longer do ministry and life without full assurance of the love of God for him. And we have gained tons of encouragement to hope in a God who loves us with that same everlasting love. And I cannot tell you who has benefited from me making known deep to the gut harm that I received at the hands of a church and a pastor many, many years ago. But as you heard in my last sermon, 
as one who has been delivered from what those things did to our family, to our finances, to our friendships, and even in multiplying trauma experiences already in our home, I get to say to those skeptical about participating in church that your and my wounding were localized. And every church is not like the places we have been. And even if you are not yet ready to return to trust people of the church, don't turn away from Jesus because he is faithful. Look too at what neither Paul or I am saying. A little differently than John Calvin, Paul is not saying that the Lord created the hurt and harm that brought Paul to feel the sentence of death. But as a byproduct of the despairing that stems from others afflicting Paul with their acts of evil, Paul will learn to rely on God alone as God delays Paul's deliverance. Or, as Joseph likewise tells us, some mean the affliction of Paul for evil, but God means the affliction of Paul for good. Paul will give us the gospel in miniature in these lines. He says first, God raises the dead. Paul has this hope because God has raised Jesus from the dead. He then lets the Corinthians know that God delivers in past, present, and future. Paul says he delivered. He will deliver. And then he says, and he will deliver us again, speaking of the future. Delivering Paul from threats from his own countrymen is no different for God than delivering Paul from being shipwrecked in the deep multiple times or delivering him from the grave all the way up to glory. God delivers, period. Like that Geico commercial that says, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor choices. That's what you do. If Geico's marketing division had let Paul make a commercial, Paul would have said, if you're God, you deliver. That's what you do. That's our hope. Rescue, save, come through on time, make a way out of no way. That's what God does. That rescue might be through translation from this world unto the next world. But for the believer, even that is God doing what only only God can do. Finally, by making our despairs known, the church can join in our deliverance through prayer. In verse 11, Paul says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Paul calling for prayer here seems almost contradictory to not relying on human effort. 
Yet the inclusion of these verses shows that prayer is not self-reliance. It is asking the Lord to do everything to deliver us. Yes, as I did say earlier, we can pray in God-reliance and not see concurrent attempts at self-efforts. But praying itself is an act of God-reliance. Paul calls the church to pray for him and for Timothy to be delivered in the future. The church is not resolved of acting because we are trusting the Lord. Or, as Eugene Peterson says in his paraphrase of this verse, you and your prayers are part of the rescue operation. Why would Paul encourage them to participate with him in prayer? Well, without making known the depths of his despair, who gets to give thanks with him when God comes through for him? Paul is not thinking about himself or how he looks to the Corinthians if he admits his despair. He is concerned about the entire assembly at Corinth giving glory to God for what the Lord has done through Paul's afflictions as God delivers Paul and Timothy. You are one who always lets the prayer list or the prayer QR code pass you by or always gives distance from you prayers. Prayers like this, pray for our country, pray for our troops, pray for our first respondents, pray for the Uvalde school shooting, but you never write something like, pray for me, I. Please stop deflecting and hiding and, and withholding our blessings from all of us. Please let us pray for you. Add a personal prayer request and start it with something like this. Pray for me, please. I. I don't want to put my dad in a home. Or I'm still hating my father's neglect and I don't want to embrace him. I am tired of my family pointing out my singleness, my divorce, my poor marriage, or my troubled child. I am up to my neck in frustrations with my child's education or emotional needs. I can't believe the Lord took my only close friend away and it hurts. How will the Lord deliver me from this? Then, once you give your thing, other believers in this body to pray. Let us sit back together and watch what Jesus will do. Because Jesus knows something about God being a deliverer from the sentence of death. When Herod wanted to slaughter him, when he was near the age of two, the Lord sent the Magi home another way, and he made Joseph had a dream to tell him, don't you go back there with my son. When the people wanted to throw him off a cliff for boldly rebuking their unbelief in the synagogue, he got so mixed in the crowd that people lost sight of him and could not destroy him. And at other times, when people picked up stones to stone him, he was able to escape out of their way. But then came that day in the garden 
when there was no detour around the looming death. There was no bridge to get over the troubled waters of the cross. There was no one to make a way out of no way. On that day, all Jesus could do was say, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. And it is because Jesus has made the greatest despair ever known to us that we get to know that he is the greatest deliverer we could ever have in our corners. Nobody can deliver like the one who took the sting out of death. No one is greater than he of whom we sing, up from the grave he rose again. No one else can make the barren give birth, split the Red Sea, jump into a fiery furnace, and jump into a lion's den, and get up from the dead after lying down for three days. Make your despair known to the body so we all can join you in the deliverance and glorify God with great thanksgiving when he does deliver her because Jesus is a deliverer and he will deliver us from every despair. Father, we thank you for our Savior who delivers us from sin and its penalty, one day its presence forever. Who right now, as the one raised from the dead, has the power to hold us in our despair and to deliver us from those same despairs. Deepen us. We bond through praying for one another. Watch the marvelous, miraculous working of our great God and Savior and do it so that your name will be magnified in places where people still have not heard the name of Christ our Savior. Bless your people now, those most despairing, and show them your great power and love. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.